Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I wanted to introduce to you a series I did earlier this year called the Luminary Talks. I invited my colleagues, my mentors, and my friends to give us lectures and inspirational information during this very paradigm-shifting time, which where I feel there's a huge opportunity to reframe how we look at medicine and illness and empower each other today. So I hope that you take this journey and learn from these inspired luminaries and enjoy this series. So I am just so grateful to introduce Dr. Stephanie Seneff. She's a dear friend and colleague. And I think, um, Stephanie, I think we met you maybe six or seven years ago when you were really just starting to be a leader and a voice and a pioneer with why we really need to look at glyphosate and why it's such an important part of uh, recovering someone's health, understanding all the mechanisms that glyphosate does to disrupt you know, our patients' uh, bodies. And so we're at this really pivotal time where I think you know education is the most important tool right now to empower us and to find a way out of kind of where we are. And so Dr. Seneff was so kind to be here with us and she's gonna like always put so many pieces together. And so she's gonna be talking about glyphosate, deuterium and COVID-19. And for uh, those of you who might be new to deuterium, we're gonna talk about that, but we also did a talk with Dr. Petra Dorfsman and Dr. Laszlo Boris, who are also leaders in this conversation. So please check those talks out as well. And you know, Dr. Seneff needs a much longer introduction than this, but I just will wanna give a short bio that Dr. Seneff is a senior research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Her recent research interests are in the role of nutritional deficiencies and toxic chemicals and disease with a focus on the mineral sulfur and the herbicide glyphosate. So welcome, Dr. Seneff. It's just such a joy and honor to have you here today with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, like always, you're going to put so many pieces together, and um, I'm sure people are going to have to watch this recording a couple of times to take it all in. But why don't we just start with really the foundation of this conversation and what is glyphosate and why do you think it plays an important role in COVID-19? Yeah, and that's a, that's a big place to start, but you know, they're all big places. So um, yeah, it's really interesting actually to me. And I've been writing about, I've written now three different articles about glyphosate and COVID-19 because I think there's a, it's a central part of the story. And uh, the reason actually is very interesting because I think it has to do with the development of biofuels and particularly perhaps possibly biodiesel fuel and possibly the biogas, the methane, biomethane gas. I'm not sure yet exactly which ones, but both of those are pouring into the environment in in uh, parts of the world where they're being actively developed. And it's, it's very sad because, you know, uh, cities are taking the initiative to, uh, to really introduce biofuel with the hope of uh, reducing the global climate change problem. Because the claim is that with biofuels, first of all, you reduce oil consumption. That's certainly true because you're getting your oil basically from the biomass, which is the residue from the crops after you've harvested in many cases. Sometimes it's the oil, like after you've cooked, you try to use waste food or waste after you've harvested the food. So the plants themselves, like the wheat stalks, the, the corn stalks, the sugarcane stalks, uh, you, you pile all those onto a barge and you ship them down to a city and you run them through a factory where they produce, they come out as oil and you know diesel oil or as gas, biomethane gas. Um, and so it sounds really good that you're sort of um, getting your gas from renewable sources because the plants can grow every year. You can get some more gas that way or your, or your diesel fuel for the vehicles. And so certain cities in the, in the United States have played a leadership role like New York City and New Orleans and, and, and Boston, unfortunately, where I live half the year. And, um, and those cities are all getting hit hard by glyphosate. I mean, by uh, COVID-19, people are getting really sick when they get it. So I think COVID-19 is a mild, is not necessarily a bad disease. It's more like the flu, as long as you don't have glyphosate running around your veins, but especially if you're breathing glyphosate from the air, which is what I think is happening. And I have no proof. It's all theory at this point. No one's done the research to see if there is glyphosate in the biodiesel fuel or if, or if when you burn the fuel with a, an engine that's not well-tuned, whether you spew out glyphosate because you know, you have nasty fumes from diesel vehicles that are not like old buses and things like that. And New York City has 11,000 buses that are running on biodiesel fuel. So there's what I'm thinking is happening is that the glyphosate is in the air. People are breathing it in the city. Mm. It's poisoning their lungs. And then their lungs are very sensitive to the virus. And then you get a whole really interesting cascade that actually relates to deuterium, which we're going to get into later. 
mm-hmm. with the way in which glyphosate disrupts your body's ability to bite off the virus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about glyphosate um, as a you know a route that we get exposed through inhalation, but that makes perfect sense as you're talking about it. And so have you, I mean, you shared just making um, our bodies more vulnerable, obviously by having the glyphosate. Um, do you have a sense of what it's doing in the lung to make the lung a little bit more vulnerable to COVID? And um, you know, we've been tracking surfactant and you know how that might be compromised in some people, but any, any insights or theories there, Stephanie? Absolutely. And in fact, it's very clear from the studies on uh, vaping. So people who smoke e-cigarettes, there was, and I knew about this lung disease that was showing up in e-cigarette smokers before COVID-19 even hit. And I was exploring that and I was thinking, I bet you this has something to do with glyphosate. Um, and I sort of hit pay dirt because it is sort of lucky that I happened to be exploring that just before COVID hit because I found out that the e-cigarettes are produced from glycerol. The glycerol is a major um, component. That's what burns in the e-cigarettes. And mm-hmm. glycerol comes from, it's, it's a, a huge amount of glycerol comes out of the biofuel industry as a leftover byproduct. So glycerol is dirt cheap these days because there's lots of it. The, the biofuel industry is really ramping up. That's another thing, last few years. Mm-hmm. So it's an, an, a new phenomenon of having all these biofuels being spewed out into the toxic chemicals from the biofuels being spewed out into the air is a new phenomenon over the past few years. And, um, and, but the, but the, uh, the glycerol, having all that glycerol makes, I think is what probably inspired them to come up with these cigarettes in the first place. They had this byproduct, what are they going to do with it? One of the things they could use it for is to make these e-cigarettes. And, um, so the people who are smoking the e-cigarettes are getting this weird lung disease that looks exactly like COVID-19. It's quite remarkable. It has the, um, the slight fever. It has a dry cough. So you're not, you don't have the runny nose, which is a characteristic feature of COVID-19. And of course, you have the breathing problems. And, um, and then, in fact, when you look at the lungs, so a fascinating study that I really uh, lean on for my story was on uh, mice that were exposed to uh, fumes from vaping fumes for three months they were exposed to these fumes and then they infected them with the flu virus. So they were predicting that the, um, that the fumes would cause them to be more sensitive to the flu virus. It's a really, really perfect experiment for showing the COVID-19 situation. And they, they found that these mice responded much more dramatically to the flu virus, producing lots of inflammatory cytokines, all the things that we're seeing in the people who are being taken down by COVID-19, incredible overreaction. Of the immune of the adaptive immune system to the virus. And the reason is because the innate immune system is crippled by the glyphosate. And the reason why it's crippled is because of, of actually collagen. It's collagen-like proteins that are make up part of the surfactants of the lungs. There's a surfactant A, B, C, D, and surfactant A and surfactant D, those two have these collagen-like stalks that are long sequences of GXY, GXY, GXY in the protein sequence. The G is glycine. And my whole theory is based on glyphosate substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. So the, I believe the glyphosate is substituting for the glycine in collagen. And I think that's why we have an epidemic in you know, joint pain and whatnot, but also in these collagen-like proteins that are surfactants in the lung that are very important for trapping viruses. So the natural immunity of the lung is unable to trap the viruses efficiently because A and D are not working. And that is exactly what they saw in this study of the mice. They saw that A and D were broken. By, um, by the fumes. They didn't mention anything about glyphosate. They weren't thinking of it at all, I'm sure, but I was. <laughs> and the other thing they found, which was really fascinating, is that the macrophages, those are the immune cells that accumulated in the lung in response to the virus, also accumulated fats. They, they piled themselves full of fatty acids. You know, so they, um, fat accumulation in the macrophages in the lungs. That is extremely similar to what happens when you expose mice to glyphosate orally. Rats. There was a study that looked at recent study looked at rats exposed to glyphosate orally at levels that were below regulatory limits, so very low level exposure mm-hmm. to glyphosate, and they showed that the glyphosate caused fatty liver disease. It caused macrophages in the liver to store fat, which is exactly what's going on with the lungs and exposure to the to the fumes from the vaping uh, cigarettes. So that really makes sense to me that it's causing in the lungs the same thing it causes in the liver if you get it orally from the air it causes that same effect in the lungs. It causes them to trap fats. I think that's because of its uh, disruption of sulfate because mm-hmm. you can, you have to store cholesterol with fats if you can't release it. And you can't release cholesterol if you don't have sulfate. I talk a lot in my research, even before glyphosate about cholesterol sulfate and its importance to the body uh, in terms of delivering both cholesterol and sulfate to the, to the tissues. 
and sulfate, the sulfate pathway is, uh, I think, just utterly destroyed by glyphosate in multiple ways. The sulfate transporters are reduced, sulfate synthesis is disrupted, sulfate activation is disrupted, sulfate transfer from one molecule. To, I feel like there's disruptions at every step of the way with sulfate, with glyphosate. And I believe that sulfate deficiency systemically is, the, is a primary factor in many, many diseases that are going up in uh, exact step with the rise in glyphosate usage on corn crops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're putting so many pieces together for me, especially around um, the fats in the macrophages due to the sulfate deficiency. And then we'll go down this rabbit hole a little bit in a moment about the extracellular matrix and thinking about all the sulfated, you know, um, proteins and, um, you know, things that need um, for, are needed for communication and all of that. So that, yeah, that, that's fascinating. And um, well, I guess um, to that point, and just for people who are listening um, to us, you know, uh, collagen is the most abundant protein, right, in our bodies. So by far, twenty-five percent yeah. of our protein is collagen. Yeah. Yeah. So if we have a you know fundamental disruption in the most abundant protein, you know, in our body, of course, it's going to break down so many body systems, and that's why you have been able to pull together every system is affected by glyphosate um, in your research, and so. Um, so no, that's super insightful. And, um, you know, part of this conversation is we want to, you know, really share your recent research and you putting together the pieces around deuterium. And so for those, this is still a really new topic, I think, to a lot of our audience, even though they might have listened to the previous lectures. Um, but can you just give us a basic understanding of what is deuterium and why you feel it's significant for human health? Yeah, and I can also say deuterium is a new topic for me. I only first learned about it last December, and I, t I totally jumped on it when I heard about it from Laszlo Boros, so the same person that you interviewed. Mm -hmm. I love him. He's so great, and he's really, um, there's so few people that are looking at deuterium, and it, it, it really comes out of it. It, it, it. You know, the West is sort of ignorant of deuterium, I think. Increasingly, people are becoming aware of deuterium-depleted water as being a potential therapeutic for cancer and other diseases, so that's starting to get people to become aware of deuterium. Um, I, I knew that deuterium was the was heavy hydrogen, but I didn't really know anything about its effects on health until I until Laszlo let me you know inform me about that. And he had a wonderful paper which I have read multiple times now. It's so full of information. Uh, it's in Medical Hypotheses, and it's a it's just so fascinating. And he just it, it was fortunate that I already knew so much about glyphosate and about glyphosate's effects on proteins and specific proteins that would be affected by glyphosate, given that it substitutes for glycine. So I had a in my brain, a whole list of proteins. And it immediately became clear to me that um, deuterium and glyphosate are a toxic, toxic mix. Mm -hmm. And um, so deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It's, it's a, a proton with an extra neutron, which makes it twice as heavy as normal hydrogen. It's a natural uh, element. Mm -hmm. And it's found in, in seawater, for example, at 155 parts per million. So that sounds like a small amount in the water. But when you look at the, and, and Blasso talks about this, when you look at the level of deuterium in the blood, at that level, 155 parts per million, that's gonna be six times as high as the level of calcium in the blood. So it's not a trivial amount. When you think about how much, you know, you don't really have a lot of parts per million when you're talking about water because hydrogen is like so, so much hydrogen in the body that 155 parts per million is still a lot of molecules, a lot of atoms of deuterium. Mm -hmm. And so they have the potential to do something interesting. And biology has actually made use of deuterium in an interesting, really, really interesting way. And deuterium is different from hydrogen in, in its physical properties. And I would say there are two things that are especially interesting about that. One is that deuterium binds much more strongly to other atoms than hydrogen does. It hangs on better to where it is and it doesn't let go as well as hydrogen does, number one. And number two, uh, there's a, um, a very fascinating biophysical property of, of hydrogen, of protons called proton tunneling. I've been it's very, very difficult biophysics literature that I've been reading and trying to understand, but it's really fascinating. Proton tunneling, and the protons can actually tunnel. Basically, they have to climb a hill to react. Like if a proton is sitting on one molecule, it needs to go over to this molecule over here. And the enzyme, there's an enzyme that's wrapped around that tries to push those two to get close together so that the proton can hop over to the other side and change the biochemical structure of both of those molecules by transferring the proton from one to another. And that's something that lots and lots of enzymes do. And many of those enzymes do it using proton tunneling. And so there's a, there's a hill you have to climb to get over a sort of um, energy barrier, and then you can come back down to the other side, but the tunneling goes right straight through the hill, like there's a tunnel in the hill, mm -hmm. and the proton can hop across without having to go over that energy barrier. And protons are much, much better at proton tunneling than deuterons are. 
And so that becomes very, very important to biology because biology wants to have protons, not deuterons on those molecules when it wants to transfer them from one molecule to another. And that turns out to be an absolutely fascinating aspect of all kinds of chemical reactions that I had not appreciated until I started to look. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there's a class of enzymes called flavoproteins or flavoenzymes, and they bind something called flavin. And flavin is a very, very interesting molecule that helps to facilitate the transfer. It sort of hangs onto the hydrogen temporarily and then ships it over to the other guy. But you can set the flavin, you bind the flavin to the, to the enzyme and you have your two substrates and the hydrogen hops across to the flavin and it goes over to the other side. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing is really very, very intricately designed in these enzymes, these flavoproteins to be able to select for hydrogen. So if there's a deuterium that is on a molecule, it won't go. So the, pro, the, 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 the enzyme won't choose a molecule that has deuterium, it'll choose one that has hydrogen. And the result is that it produces a product that has low deuterium at that place where it stuck that hydrogen atom. It's really fascinating. And it turns out to really, really matter because when you start to look at the mitochondria and all the, all the enzymes that take place in the citric acid cycle, which is what generates ATP, which is the energy currency for the cell, really, really important. Mm -hmm. And the mitochondria absolutely want hydrogen and not deuterium in the intermembrane space. And they work really, really hard to get that using all these flavoenzymes that pump hydrogen into the intermembrane space, but not deuterium. So you end up with what, what Glaslow calls metabolic water, which is water that's produced from oxygen. So the, the whole citric acid cycle oxidizes oxygen, produces water from oxygen and by oxidizing the, the, um, the, the nutrients like sugar. It mm -hmm. produces water. And that water that it produces is deuterium depleted because of all these flavoenzymes. It's severely deuterium depleted. And so you get this really, really beautiful water inside the mitochondrial intermembrane space with all those hydrogen atoms, those protons that are going to go back out through the ATPase pump, which is the enzyme that actually makes the ATP. That's super, super important. That pump hates deuterium. And that's what uh, Laszlo has been talking about, you know, is this whole idea of the mitochondria absolutely want low deuterium in the intermembrane space in order to be able to make ATP without basically breaking the enzyme itself or spewing out uh, oxidative damage and not being able to make enough ATP using up more energy. All these things are gonna be bad if you've got too much deuterium inside the intermembrane space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and then um, for people who probably need to listen to this again, I mean, that's just you know fascinating. And then what's happening is we're overexposed to deuterium probably than we were naturally, so like that is naturally supposed to occur. Is that your- well, like, Two things that are gonna happen. Yeah. One is the plants may be producing uh, products that are not as deuterium depleted as they should be. Fats in fact are, are typically uh, much lower deuterium mm -hmm. in fats than in mm -hmm. other kinds of foods. It's quite interesting. The fats, um, the whole fat synthesis process mm -hmm. tries hard to choose, to choose protons over deuterons to make the fat. And so, for example, Laszlo has measured uh, deuterium levels in various foods, and he found the lowest levels in butter and mm -hmm. lard. And those are foods that I love. So I was like, okay, yay, that's good. <laughs> I believe in a high-fat diet. And, you know, he says a high-fat diet, well, that's a low-deuterium diet. Maybe that's why it's good. And that's really quite fascinating to think about that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the reason. Mm -hmm. You know, and also deuterium uh, in water. So they know from natural water sources. I found a paper that was quite fascinating. It looked at the... Um, across the United States, um, they could actually know what, per, how much deuterium there was in the, in the uh, water supply in different states. You, you could actually apparently get that information. And um, so they looked for a correlation between deuterium in the water supply and depression. Mm -hmm. And they found a striking correlation. The people who had water that was low in deuterium had less depression. And I think that may explain why Iceland does so well because Iceland has incredibly high life expectancy. People are really healthy there. People are studying their genes to figure out, you know, geez, these people have these fantastic genes. I think it might just simply be their water because they're getting glacier water and glacier water is naturally depleted in deuterium. Wow. So yeah. it's quite interesting. So we're probably getting too much deuterium in our diet because our plants that are being exposed to glyphosate are making uh, foods that are higher in deuterium than they would normally do because the glyphosate's mess. I haven't told you how glyphosate messes it up yet, yeah. but that's quite interesting also. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I should tell you that now. Yeah, yeah, let's just go into that. But um, again, for people who want to, you know, learn more about deuterium, Dr. Boros, who done, he's on a lot of podcasts. We interviewed him. He has, he's putting a lot of information out there. So please check him out. Yeah, he's great. I really, mm -hmm. um, I really uh, follow him. Uh, 
you know, he's right up there with Zach Bush is another one that I really love. So <laughs> there's mm-hmm. some great people out there. And Zen Hanukkah, of course, fighting uh, politically for getting rid of glyphosate. So there are some wonderful people out there that are helping to mm-hmm. get this message out because it's so important. But anyway, the glute, so the glyphosate and the deuterium is really, really interesting. And I already knew that. Uh, so I knew that glyphosate, I mean, I believe glyphosate substitutes for glycine during protein synthesis. This is something I've been screaming from the rooftops, but everyone's saying I'm crazy. So you can decide who you want to believe. But but when you look at Monsanto's own data, it becomes very clear that that's what's going on, specifically with the enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts, which is EPSP synthase in the shikimate pathway in the, plant, in the plants. That's a super important enzyme uh, because it the pathway produces the aromatic amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine. And those aromatic amino acids are part of the building blocks of proteins, but they're also precursors to all kinds of important molecules, all the neurotransmitters. Uh, in fact, the flavin, the flavin that these proteins bind to comes out of the shikimate pathway. That's riboflavin. Wow. So riboflavin, there's these B vitamins, uh, niacin and riboflavin. And okay. niacin produces something called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NAD. And if you've looked at anything with respect to metabolism, you'll see that NAD is all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very interesting. NAD is a, is a hydrogen, it's a depleted, hydrogen depleted hydrogen carrier. It actually hangs on to a hydrogen that's depleted, that's not deuterium, which was put there by an enzyme, a flavoenzyme that's able to select for hydrogen. And it hangs on to that hydrogen and then it goes to another enzyme and that hydrogen gets taken off and put on another molecule such as a fat, you're gonna make a, a low deuterium fatty acid. So you're gonna produce low deuterium fat because you have low deuterium NAD Mm-hmm. But if you don't have NAD because glyphosate is disrupting the ability to make it, then you're going to have all kinds of deficiencies in fat synthesis and whatnot. So one thing is just simple deficiency. FAD and NAD both come out of that sh- shikimate pathway. And mm-hmm. both of them are super important for these enzymes that deplete deuterium. So mm-hmm. right there, you've got a huge problem. But it's not just the depletion of those two. It's also the disruption of the enzyme itself that glyphosate is causing, I believe. And, um, and, and this gets into the way glyphosate disrupts EPSP synthase which is quite fascinating. The Monsanto researchers have determined that glyphosate uh, messes up the binding of PEP. So the enzyme is EPSP synthase and it uses phosphoenopyruvate PEP as a substrate. And phosphoenopyruvate obviously has a phosphate because there's phospho, that first word is a phosphate. Phosphate binding is a very important part of the story. And um, there's lots of enzymes that bind phosphates, but both the NAD and the FAD have two phosphates in them. They're a dinucleotide with two phosphates connecting the two nucleotides together. They're, they're like ATP actually. You know, they have the two, nucle- the two phosphates in the middle that bind to the enzyme at a phosphate binding site, just like the phosphate of PEP binds to the enzyme at a phosphate binding site in EPSB synthase, which is the one glyphosate disrupts. People might be losing me at this point, but I'm trying well, to make no, it we'll, simple. We'll listen to this again, but we're, we're <laughs> okay. Right? This is fascinating. So, yeah. yeah, it's so fascinating. So, so, so glyphosate, EPSP synthase binds the phosphate of PEP at a site where it has a highly conserved glycine residue. Mm. Um, and that glycine residue, if you, you can mutate the enzyme and you can turn it into alanine. Alanine is very similar. Glycine is the smallest amino acid. Glyphosate is a glycine molecule, except that it has extra stuff stuck onto its a nitrogen atom. And glycine um, is, is, is essential in many, many different enzymes. Glycine is essential uh, to make that enzyme work properly. And in particular, in these flavo proteins that are able to select for deuterium, they bind NAD and FAD, and both of those have these two phosphates in the middle. And the place where they bind those two phosphates is a, it has a motif, they call it a motif, a sort of typical pattern that shows up in all these flavo enzymes, which is called GXGXXG motif. That's got three glycines and the X's are wild cards. So that motif, that binding site requires three glycines. And all those enzymes that have those, that bind to phosphate in, in uh, NAD and FAD have those three glycines at that spot. And every one of those glycines is susceptible to glyphosate substitution. And glyphosate likes to substitute for glycine specifically at places that bind phosphate because glyphosate has this methylphosphonate hanging off of its nitrogen atom that needs some place to go. So if the enzyme is geared up to bind phosphate, it has to have room for that phosphate ion to fit. And that gives glyphosate plenty of room to slap its, its, its methylphosphonate into that spot that's supposed to be where the phosphate goes. Mm-hmm. So the enzyme is happy to put glyphosate there when it assembles because it has room for that piece. But when it's done, the en- en- enzyme no longer works because it can't bind phosphate anymore. Glyphosate's in the way. Mm-hmm. So I think all those flavoenzymes are getting disrupted by glyphosate 
in the same way that EPSP synthase is getting disrupted. And they've, they've designed those GMO Roundup ready crops by just swapping in alanine for that glycine. And then all of a sudden the enzyme's completely resistant to glyphosate toxicity. So, I mean, it's, it's screaming at them that glyphosate is substituting for the glycine at that site. They know that mm -hmm. if they replace that glycine, it no longer, glyphosate no longer works. Mm -hmm. But they don't say that the reason why is because glyphosate substituted for that glycine. They won't say that. I think they know that. Mm -hmm. But they know that if we know that, it's game over for glyphosate because it's so devastating. Glyphosate has a unique mechanism of toxicity that's absolutely unique to glyphosate. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything else that replaces glycine during protein synthesis. There are many toxins that replace amino acids. Mm -hmm. They're called um, amino acid analogs of existing amino acids that cause serious diseases like ALS and metabolic disorders. You know, the, the, um, there was a um, McCandless, I forget his name, uh, something McCandless, who was the, um, there's a book, uh, Into the, uh, Into the, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I don't remember the details. There's this book about this guy who was up in Alaska and he, um, and he, uh, into the wild, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, uh, and he was trying to live off the wild and he was eating these wild potatoes. He was eating the seeds of these wild potatoes and those seeds had a toxin in them. That was an uh, aromatic, it was an amino acid analog of, of um, ar arginine. And, and that's an that's a amino acid. So that's another one of the amino acids in the, um, you know, in, in the body. And so mm -hmm. this amino acid analog in these seeds killed him. Basically it gave him metabolic defects such that he could be starved to death. And so, and there's also like there's an, another amino acid analog of proline that's associated with um, uh, multiple sclerosis. And then there's an amino acid analog of um, uh, serine, I think it is, that is uh, in Guam, they had this big problem after World War II with these people getting ALS, a weird kind of ALS. And they attributed that to an amino acid analog as well. In other words, there are these known amino acid analogs um, that cause toxicity by doing exactly what I think glyphosate is doing. Mm -hmm. But the Monsanto denies, they say it's absolutely impossible. I'm ridiculous. I mean, that's where we are right now. We're in this battle where it's kind of me against the world because <laughs> uh, nobody else seems to be willing to believe it. But when you do believe it, then all of a sudden everything makes sense. And in fact, glyphosate has been shown to suppress a whole bunch of enzymes. And I wrote them down here because I just want to make sure which ones they were. Mm -hmm. But there's an NADH dehydrogenase that it suppresses mm -hmm. in the E. coli glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, succinate dehydrogenase, ferric reductase, and cyte reductase. All of these enzymes, reductases and dehydrogenases, they're pulling hydrogen off of one thing and putting them on something else, and they're doing that with the deuterium depletion in mind. And they're all disrupted, but they're all suppressed by glyphosate. That's been shown in various studies that I've collected. So glyphosate suppresses and these enzymes are all binding phosphate at NAD and FAD, you know, they're binding phosphate and, and they've got this GX, GXX, G motif there and it's getting messed up. So they're not working properly. And, and it's devastation. When you look at, for example, G6PD, that's the one in the, in the um, red blood cells. It's a huge amount of G6PD in the red blood cells that to keep NAD pH supply to help out glutathione. If glutathione doesn't have an NA, enough NAD pH, you get oxidized glutathione. The liver has a huge problem today in today's world with oxidation damage because there's not enough reduced glutathione. And the reason is because G6PD is getting disrupted by glyphosate in the red blood cells. It's not supplying the reducing uh, power for the glutathione to come back after it's reacted. So glutathione mops up reactive oxygen species, protects you from oxidative damage, turns into GSSG, which is this glutathione disulfide. It's the oxidized form of, G of glutathione. And then uh, in order to get back, it needs that NADPH that's not being produced by G6PD. We have a lot of uh, mutations in G6PD. That's the most heavily mutated protein in the body. And I suspect it's under pressure because it's so damaged that there's actual, I believe there's a mechanism in biology by which um, uh, an enzyme becomes more heavily mutated when it's under stress. Mm -hmm. I suspect there's a mechanism that can do that. Mm -hmm. And so, because I'm seeing that enzymes that are predicted to be under stress from glyphosate uh, have a lot of mutations. So the, the enzyme is trying to find some way to be, you know, for example, get rid of that glycine. <laughs> if it could change it into alanine and still make it work, then you'd be good to go. So, and a lot of those mutations are causing terrible problems because they were a really bad idea, but you, you don't know until you try. That's how evolution works. You know, you say, okay, let's try this, let's try that. We've got to find a way to get around this problem. And eventually you find a way and that person does very well. But in the meantime, lots of people get severe diseases from genetic mutations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is, you know, really 
you know, what I believe is like the definition, right, of epigenetics, right, how these environmental pressures are changing transcription and configuration of these enzymes that are going to, you know, reduce efficiency or even inactivate, you know, such important molecules that we need for health and well-being. And I, you're putting so many things together for me. I mean, I didn't know about the riboflavin and the niacin piece of the shikimate pathway. So, you know, so those are building blocks for these key enzymes. And then they also have you know, glycine, right, as part of the building block for those yeah. um, enzymes. So then they're getting glyphosate. Yeah, so they're getting this double, the nutritional deficiency plus the glyphosate disruption is really um, paralyzing these enzymes and creating an inefficiency. And then also the deuterium load, right? So if they're um, exactly deuterium rather than hydrogen, when it's a hydrogen or a proton shuttling mechanism in the body to turn things on and off, again, I'm oversimplifying everything that we're just hit from all these angles. And that's why, you know, when we see the patients, we see these patients have tried a lot of things and they've been sick for so long and they're, they're really sick, you know, and, and when you, when you hear something like this, you're like, wow, you know, <laughs> no wonder, right. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Um, I mean, my conclusion is you really can't do anything better than get rid of the glyphosate. That's what you have to focus on first, get rid of the glyphosate and everything else hopefully will follow because, and of course people get into a situation where sulfur's not working. You know, a lot of people have sulfur sensitivity problems and that's because mm-hmm. glyphosate is messing up sulfide oxidase, which forces sulfite to be toxic because sulfite is very reactive and normally it gets oxidized to sulfate. And I think that's getting messed up by glyphosate. And then sulfite's getting, and also the sulfite reductase, the uh, assimilatory sulfite reductase that makes methionine out of sulfate. That's been shown to be disrupted in E. coli, uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, in plants as well. So the methionine deficiency shows up in these plants when they're exposed to glyphosate. Methionine is the, um, is the core uh, sulfur-containing amino acid that's the base of all the organic sulfur in our body. And so our, we can't make methionine. We depend on our gut microbes to make it for us. And they're going to make it with an enzyme that gets busted by glyphosate. So instead of making methionine, they end up reducing the sulfide to hydrogen sulfide gas. And you get all these problems with bloating and hydrogen sulfide, mm-hmm. even toxicity, because there's so much hydrogen sulfide gas that can cause brain fog because the hydrogen sulfide just goes right. Hydrogen sulfide goes right up to the brain. And hydrogen sulfide is a hibernating uh, and, uh, molecule. It, 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 uh, it causes hibernation. So it basically causes you to get into a brain fog situation because you've got all this hydrogen sulfide that's coming out of your gut microbes because they can't make methionine. Instead, they make hydrogen sulfide. Mm-hmm. That's the gut brain connection right there, right? <laughs> you know, for yeah, you know, yeah. brain fog it's is really interesting. A big symptom um, that a lot of our patients have. And before we tie this into COVID, I, I think there's some questions and I would love to hear your perspective of, you know, how to get the glyphosate out of our bodies, right? So avoiding exposure is number one, right? Whenever we're trying to eliminate a toxicant, we want to avoid exposure. And then, you know, I'm just curious about maybe your research or your knowledge of, um, you know, testing and half-life of glyphosate and, you know, um, you know, how do we can also, we, and I'm happy to share kind of what we've put together is glyphosate, glyphosate, um, detox protocols, but I, I'm just super curious what your recommendations are and your thoughts at this point are. Yeah, I have some ideas. Of course, I'm not a clinician, so I, I listen to people like you to try to figure out what's working, what's not working. But I've heard a fulvic acid and humic acid, which is organic matter from the soil, which are binding um, molecules. They're complicated sugar chains, um, quite fascinating. They bind to lots of um, toxic chemicals, and they also have enzymes embedded in them that are very sophisticated, enzymes that have a sort of generic capability to break down lots of toxins. And so there's a hope that those enzymes that are in, in bound to the fulvic acid, humic acid, could be able to break it down. So what I, ideally you'd want to have, I think ideally you'd want to have microbes growing in your gut that can break down glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And um, there are only a few, most of the microbes don't know how to break that CP bond. So that's one reason why glyphosate often just sticks around. It'll just go right straight through and out the feces. So for example, cow manure, you know, and of course organic um, agriculture uses cow manure and the cow manure doesn't have to be organic. So you're putting glyphosate into the organic food that way. When you use cow manure that's coming out of cows that are getting heavy exposures to glyphosate, um, it doesn't really break down very easily. But um, but there are enzymes that do break it down and there are microbes that have those enzymes. And one that I found was acetobacter and that really mm-hmm. raised my eyebrows because I thought, oh, acetobacter, that's a very common microbe in uh, fermented foods like apple cider vinegar and sauerkraut. So uh, I, I try hard to eat fermented foods for that reason, even possibly in yogurt. You know, so all of these fermented foods are likely to have acetobacter and those acetobacter may, it's not clear for sure, they're the species that can, but they may be able to break down the glyphosate enzymatically. I think that would be fantastic if you could kind of get your gut colonized 
with some microbes that are capable of breaking down glyphosate enzymatically. That'd be really great because then you could really clear it easily. Uh, there's also non-enzymatic ways to break it down, which are interesting. And that's one thing very fortunate about the water supply. I think the municipal water supply, they typically use chlorine-based products, either chlorine or chlorine dioxide in the water supply to kill microbes. They're using it mostly to kill microbes and make the water safe. Uh, it turns out they also break down glyphosate. And so mm -hmm. I, and I know Carrie mm -hmm. Rivera has, yeah. uh, she's a friend of mine and she's had an amazing success story in reversing autism in over 600 mm -hmm. autistic kids. She treats thousands of kids around the world. And uh, her, she has a, a really interesting, uh, you know, protocol that includes chondroitin sulfate and vitamin D. So she's including things that I would expect to be beneficial for yeah. autism. Uh, but she also includes chlorine dioxide as a uh, major part of her treatment program. And she gets a huge amount of flack for that because they're saying, oh my God, bleach, you know? So it's very frustrating because she has a, and I don't know of anyone else who's had that kind of success with autism. So I have to pay attention to that because I'm so interested in solving the autism problem. And I'm so thrilled that, she, and I've met these kids there. They seem normal. I mean, that's amazing. These kids that have been, had their autism reversed. It really mm -hmm. is reversed. And so it's good news that the autism brain is not necessarily destroyed. It's only in some kind of a hibernation state probably because of the mm -hmm. hydrogen sulfide gas, mm -hmm. because a major, major problem in autism is sulfate and mm -hmm. glyphosate's messing up the sulfate. So if you can get rid of the glyphosate, um, you can really help the autistic kids. And I suspect the chloride is doing something more than that. And I've actually studied it because uh, chlorine dioxide is a very interesting um, oxidizing agent that specifically oxidizes sulfur. Mm -hmm. It's specific to sulfur. It's quite, quite interesting, mm -hmm. unlike chlorine. So the chlorine is, is toxic, there's no question, but chlorine dioxide is not really very toxic. I mean, obviously, if you take a ton of it, you'll get sick, mm -hmm. like anything else. You know, salt is toxic, too, if you take too much, or even oxygen, for example. Oxygen is highly reactive, but we still use it, right, because <laughs> we can't live without it. And to some extent, that's true with the chlorine dioxide, because it oxidizes to hypochlorite, which is something that the uh, macrophages produce naturally to try to kill, mm -hmm. keep the microbes in check. So it's sort of helping the macrophages to fight off the infection. And typically you've got all kinds of pathogens overgrowing in your gut because glyphosate is messing up your beneficial bacteria. So that's one of the problems you have with autism is these pathogens and the, hypo and the chlorine dioxide can help to kill them off. But the really interesting thing is that chlorine dioxide breaks down glyphosate. So your water supply, I think is gonna be pretty safe if it's gone through a municipal process at the treatment, the water treatment plant, your water supply is gonna be pretty safe because I think it's gonna wipe out the glyphosate. But, um, but then when you um, drink this uh, chlorine dioxide, very low concentrations of chlorine dioxide, I think it's helping to break down the glyphosate in your, in your body, but in the oral cavity, like in your mouth and before it even gets to the, to the stomach, it's breaking down the glyphosate. So I, I, I have a suspicion and it's also oxidizing sulfur, mm -hmm. which is super important for producing sulfate. And in fact, I've written, I wrote a paper before I even knew about glyphosate. I wrote a paper about taurine. Taurine mm -hmm. is the only sulfonated amino acid. It's mm -hmm. a really unusual amino acid. It doesn't go into the proteins at all, but it gets stored in high concentrations in the brain, in the heart, and in the liver. Mm -hmm. Taurine gets stored in high concentrations. And when you have seizures, the, the taurine gets released from the brain. And I believe it gets shipped to the liver, taken up by the liver, conjugated to bile acids, shipped over to the gut microbes, and then the gut microbes oxidize the taurine to sulfate, which is really, really interesting. So I think you're relying on your gut microbes to supply sulfate through taurine, through stored taurine under conditions of emergency. And, um, and that oxidation of taurine to sulfate by the microbes is probably messed up by glyphosate. And I've seen, for example, E. coli has huge suppression of the um, proteins that take taurine in, in the E. coli, All, several different proteins that import taurine get totally busted by glyphosate in a study that I read. So if they can't, they're not taking the taurine up probably because they can't oxidize it to sulfate and they can't because the sulfide oxidase is being messed up. So I think there's a lot going on with the gut microbes getting messed up in their ability to convert taurine into sulfate. But the um, chlorine dioxide will help to do that because it converts taurine into taurine chloramine. That's well known actually. Hypochlorite converts taurine into taurine chloramine. And in fact, people have argued that that taurine's, one of taurine's roles in the body is to protect from hypochlorite that's released by them by the macrophages to fight the infection mm -hmm. and the taurine then picks up that hypochlorite and makes taurine chloramine which prevents other kinds of damage that could happen if that did if that taurine wasn't there but then the taurine chloramine is much more reactive than taurine so it's easier to turn it into sulfate so it's kind of a really cool system but i think it's getting messed up by glyphosate mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating we use a lot of taurine with a lot of our 
patients have a stagnation in their liver and gallbladder and a lot of, you know, thick sludgy bile. And then obviously how bile is so important for digestion and elimination. And so I, um, yeah, that, you know, makes me think of all these other things. And, you know, we've been, um, Stephanie, using hypochorus in the, in the office, just, um, we've actually a local company that they're, they're right down the street in Woodenville from us called Briotech, and they have found a way to stabilize hypochorus. And oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So we've been using it as like, that's a, awesome. Yeah. yeah because in my office is like a spray and, you know, just, you know, you, we can use it ingested. They have a dental rinse and they have like a spray. So we've been using that. And then, you know, we've had, um, you know, obviously chlorine dioxide and MMS have been politically kind of this whole no, they're totally you know, a political yeah, wildfire, yeah, so yeah. we've been having you know to navigate that and treatment of patients the cds and the chlorine dioxide solution has been a covid treatment for people who go down i know way. including it's, president yeah. trump right <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's interesting what comes out of his mouth and we're like wow we, we use all of that stuff right um so <laughs> but um but yeah so no that that's really interesting i had never um, heard that it, it's able to, um, you know, get rid of glyphosate. And, Gee, um, well, she thinks it's essential for the autistic kids. She said yeah. that um, she treats thousands of kids and, and many of them, the mother says, you know what, I'm not going to use the, the, the chlorine dioxide because there's so much controversy. I don't, I'm not going to use that. I'll do everything else, but not the chlorine dioxide. Not a one of them has had their autism converted, not one. Mm-hmm. And there have been 600 conversions, all of them use chlorine dioxide. So she thinks it's an essential part of her treatment, yeah. which is why I feel I have to speak out about it. I mean, I know it's very dangerous politically to speak out about chlorine dioxide because it's been so politicized it's just crazy because it's also very very cheap so and that's why farmer doesn't like it but you know anything cheap that works is like oh my god we got to get rid of this right (laughs) you know I know, I know, I know. That's just the it's crazy, crazy world we live in. But no, I, I, I'm grateful for you um, sharing that mechanism because, you know, if we, I think, again, education's empowering. So if we're all equipped to be able to speak, you know, confidently and scientifically about why these things work, you know, then it's a whole different, you know, story, right? Exactly. That's why mm-hmm. I needed to search deeply with chlorine dioxide because I'm like, oh my God, this stuff works. I got to figure out why. And in fact, the chloride channel, I think it's also susceptible to glyphosate. The chloride channel, mm-hmm. which is essential for the for the uh, stomach to, to produce stomach acid. Mm-hmm. And that channel has an essential glycine residue right at the squeeze spot. And if you replace that with a, a, a molecule, a, a, a amino acid that looks like glyphosate in terms of being negatively charged and bulkier than the glycine, then the chloride can't get through. So you're going to block the chloride uh, movement through the channel, which is going to prevent the stomach acid from being produced. So I think there's some of that going on as well. And um, with glyphosate messing up the chloride channel. So then you sort of need uh, chloride to help you out with that. You know, mm-hmm. you need more chloride if the channel's not working well, you have to boost the, the supply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can think of a lot of reasons why chlorine dioxide would be useful, particularly mm-hmm. it's so interesting that it oxidizes specifically sulfur. Mm-hmm. And that taurine is available to catch that oxidation. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's actually used naturally by the immune cells to fight the uh, microbes. So the uh, body knows how to handle hypochlorite, you know, because it's something that's part of biology. Right. A lot of these um, crazy drugs that they feed autistic kids, you know, these uh, antipsychotic drugs, those are so horrible and they're not natural at all. The body doesn't know how to use them properly. And they cause all kinds of side effects, really devastating side effects. Um, huge mm-hmm. lists of side effects from these uh, drugs that are being given to autistic kids in large numbers. Mm-hmm. I think it's just horrible. And it's just, I mean, there's nothing about chlorine dioxide compared to what's going on with those drugs that the pharmaceutical industry is handing out like candy to the autistic kids. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. really amazing that they're able to put such a big message out about chlorine dioxide being toxic, and yet they're perfectly fine with these psychotic, antipsychotic drugs, you know? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. And then just reminding people too, um, I think it's really through your work that, you know, they've shown that the MMR does contain glyphosate and you put some pieces together. Absolutely. Story of vaccine injury, then the glyphosate exposure and then chlorine dioxide, you know, working. Do you mind just sharing just a nugget about how you found that? Um, glyphosate was in the MMR vaccine? Yeah, it's really disturbing. And in fact, Zen Honeycutt, uh, she's a good friend of mine and she runs Moms Across America and she's, she's really awesome. And she's been really trying to get the message out about glyphosate being toxic. And um, and so I, you know, she and I talked and we both said, geez, it could be in the vaccines because the vaccines have these, particularly they have gelatin mm-hmm. and gelatin comes from collagen and collagen has tons of glycine. And that's, so I'm suspecting, you know, collagen, in fact, Anthony Samsel tested uh, gelatin and found mm-hmm. glyphosate in it. And then Anthony Samson and Zen Honeycutt independently tested several vaccines. 
and they both found a consistent story between the two of them, independent tests. And um, in fact, even testing multiple, you know, Anthony tested multiple samples of MMR with multiple mechanisms of testing, and he found glyphosate consistently. And MMR had by far the most glyphosate in it compared to any other vaccine they tested. So it really stands out, glyphosate and MMR. And I think that may be a huge piece of the puzzle with respect to MMR causing autism. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. And, I, and I, again, I have, under, I have come up with a mechanism by which MMR could cause autism if glyphosate is involved. That's really interesting. And that goes back to some research by Professor Singh, S-I-N-G-H, uh, Utah State University. They've been doing research since the 1990s. They had several papers where they showed that autistic kids had a, a overreaction to the MMR vaccine. They had an over-exaggerated uh, immune response to the MMR vaccine producing uh, more, way more antibodies. It, it, actually, the vaccine was phenomenally successful. They produced way more antibodies than normal kids. And then they also produced antibodies in the brain, which is you're not supposed to do because the brain is supposed to be protected. Mm -hmm. But the autistic kids were producing antibodies to MMR, to this um, protein produced by the measles virus called hemagglutinin. Mm -hmm. and, the, um, and the brains of autistic kids were producing antibodies to hemagglutinin in the brain. And those antibodies were attacking the myelin sheath because they, were, they had molecular mimicry as a process by which... Um, uh, proteins in, in invasive species match well with some segment of a protein in, your, in, a, in human protein. And the antibodies, if they're working too hard, they get confused and they attack the human protein instead. So there is, their theory was that the uh, antibodies in the brain were attacking the myelin basic protein in the myelin sheath and destroying the myelin sheath. Uh, and it was triggered by the MMR vaccine through this process. Well, it turns out that particular sequence that matches it's about, I don't know, maybe 18 or something amino acids, but there's uh, three glycines in there that are conserved on both sides. So both of those proteins, the one in the, in the myelin basic protein and the one in the hemagglutinin, that, that segment, three glycines that line up. And so those glycines have an opportunity to become glyphosate when the virus is being grown. So these are all live virus vaccines. Glyphosate is showing up in the live virus vaccines. It means the virus is grown on glyphosate and it puts the glyphosate into the hemagglutinin, I'm suspecting which makes it difficult to break down the human gluten and also makes it much more allergenic. So that could explain the whole thing right there, that just that very nasty protein produced by the virus because it picked up glyphosate, causing an over-exaggerated immune response and then wiping out the myelin sheath. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard that. And the, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, we're seeing this other phenomenon on, on a lot of the kiddos and children and young adults and even adults with um, pandas and pans and how there's this kind of um, neuroinflammation and these antibodies, um, you know, with um, dopamine receptors and, you know, all of these, you know, parts of the neurons and things in the brain. And so, um, yeah, I wonder if that mechanism crosses over just kind of thinking about other um, vaccine injury with, with um, stimulating that or just even glyphosate exposure is what you're saying as well. So, yeah, I mean, glyphosate in a vaccine to me seems absolutely horrendous. And in fact, mm -hmm. you know, Monsanto people are aware that when you inject glyphosate, it's much more toxic than if you if you take it orally. Mm -hmm. And and I and people are, and then, uh, <laughs> Zen Honeycutt is worrying about glyphosate in the COVID nineteen vaccine, which I think is awesome. And she's actually she just wrote something up, and she has a place where you can sign up and try to send messages to the people who are developing these COVID nineteen vaccines to say we demand that you test your vaccine for glyphosate. You know, because if they're going to force us to get this vaccine, yeah. and it's got glyphosate in it, we're not going to be happy, right? Yeah, forget <laughs> you know? it. Forget it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no, that's. Fascinating. Thank you for putting all that together, Stephanie. And, you know, I, I know we, we could talk all day, but I want to uh, circle back and just, um, you know, where, um, you know, how does COVID-19 fit into the story? And you were talking about um, that it might even be the acute cases are attempting to restore like mitochondrial health and what we're seeing with um, oh yeah you know, with this piece. So do you mind? Um, I'm glad you brought that, that up journey? because that's yeah. quite an interesting story too. So but basically the innate immune system is broken by glyphosate because of those stalks and what I told you about earlier. And, um, and then the adaptive immune, immune system then goes on overdrive. And so you get, and this has been shown that in the lungs of the people who succumb, they get tons of uh, cytokines being released by the immune system to try to fight the vaccine because they can't trap it because those traps are broken. And so uh, you get all these uh, cytokines, which then cause inflammatory inflammation damage in the lungs. And that inflammation triggers um, our, a natural response through signaling. It, it causes the body to upregulate heme oxygenase. 
And I think heme oxygenase is a major player in the in the cascade downward. And I think glyphosate's playing a major role there as well. In fact, it's quite interesting. Heme oxygenase, I believe it's upregulated for, for a process that can help to supply the mitochondria with deuterium deplete, depleted uh, pro protons. Because it, it's really interesting when you look at heme itself is actually a really interesting molecule that plays incredibly important roles in the, in the enzymes, but also its whole process of heme synthesis and heme degradation involve these enzymes that have this NAD and FAD and flavoproteins, all this stuff. They're making deuterium depleted water. It's very, very interesting. And heme, heme oxygenase produces biliveridin, which then gets converted to bilirubin. And there's a bilirubin, biliveridin back and forth mechanism that I think is basically scrubbing and producing high quality protons to supply to the mitochondria. These, these enzymes take place in the mitochondria and they are working very hard to provide the mitochondria with deuterium depleted water. So I think that it's a deuterium deficiency problem that's triggering this nasty response. The heme oxygenase gets upregulated to try to help solve that problem. And, and the heme oxygenase of course is breaking down heme so the red blood cells can't carry oxygen. So you get this kind of suffocation effect that you mm -hmm. can't breathe because your, your red blood cells are losing their heme. But the really horrible thing, hemoxygenase normally actually resolves inflammation. It's been well established that hemoxygenase is a beneficial enzyme to have in a situation of inflammation. It'll resolve the inflammation. However, there's a mutation of glycine in hemoxygenase at a place where it binds heme that if that glycine is, is a bulkier negatively charged amino acid, it's gonna mess up heme and cause it to go the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. So mm -hmm. there's papers that talk about that. So if glycine, if that glycine is substituted by glyphosate in heme, it's gonna turn it into a pro-oxidative rather than antioxidative enzyme. And in fact, it normally uh, releases Fe plus two, ferrous iron, which gets then trapped in ferritin. Ferritin is upregulated as well. This is all seen in COVID-19. Upregulation of ferritin, upregulation mm -hmm. of heme oxygenase. The ferritin traps, traps the iron, the Fe plus two, ferrous iron. And so it's protected because iron is very toxic if it's loose, right? Mm -hmm. But when you have this glyphosate substitution for the glycine, it turns it into a pro-oxidant enzyme. The, the, the uh, heme oxygenase does not succeed in, ox in changing heme into biliverdin, it doesn't do it. Instead, it releases Fe plus four, mm. fer feral iron, which is extremely toxic, which won't go into the ferritin. And it's gonna be this feral iron loose in your body, which is gonna make the pro-inflammatory situation go on fire. So you get this incredible vascular inflammation response, which is what you see in these COVID-19 patients. They get a massive, vas and then they get into um, coagulation because um, this uh, situation is so is such a panic for the body that it, it starts, you know, making blood clots. And then you get multiple organ failure because you have all these blood clots in the organ. So it's a really horrible cascade that happens, I think, in part because glyphosate is getting into heme oxygenase mm -hmm. and causing it to be the reverse of what it would normally be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And um, yeah, I, I, um, I think that we have to, especially, you know, when we're looking at COVID treatments, we have to understand this mechanism, I think, um, more greatly um, to give people the right tools when they are in crisis, because I think we're still navigating appropriate treatment. I mean, obviously, I don't work in a hospital, but we're just standing on the sidelines, just hoping that, you know, some of this message gets to the people treating these patients, that they just have more tools in this other um, you know, other mechanism to think about and really recovering people because I obviously the ventilator situation isn't the solution or or helpful. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, so well, Stephanie, gosh, I could you know ask you a thousand more questions. Is there anything else on your mind that you didn't get to share? We covered a lot of it. I'm sure people are a little overwhelmed. We hit a lot of hot topics. Worried, so. be worried, right? You know, yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah, for sunlight. I mean, I always like to say sunlight. Yeah. Get out in yeah. the sun. It'll make make your natural vitamin D. Vitamin D is really helpful for your immune system. You need to boost your innate immune system. That's the most important thing you can do to protect from um, COVID nineteen. Mm -hmm. And and also, I think eating uh, lots of um, spices, herbs and spices, they mm -hmm. carry uh, molecules that are going to help to transport um, sulfate and and solve the deuterium problem. So I think uh, eating herbs and spices is also good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Flavonoids and, and um, you know, flavonoids is like flavin, right? So they're, they're, they're molecules that help to make that uh, proton tunneling stuff work. Uh, so mm -hmm. they're going to help you to deplete deuterium, mm -hmm. which is why herbs and spices, that's a good reason, I think, why herbs and spices are healthy for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Along with the healthy fats, eat the fats to get the low uh, 
you know, and of course, glacier water, if you can get a hold of water that's naturally depleted, that's good too, so. Mm -hmm. I know we're starting to look at, you know, the water, you know, conversation, there's so many waters to think about, structured water, you know. I know, actually so, hydrogen water. Hydrogen water may be a way to get low deuterium. I, I, I wonder about that because hydrogen gas, I know the gut microbes make a very, very low deuterium hydrogen gas. And that's partly because uh, hydrogen leaves the, uh, more easily than, than deuterium does. Deuterium is heavy. So you, whenever you go into the gas phase, you're going to get uh, deuterium depletion of the hydrogen. So I'm suspecting hydrogen gas, which is a lot cheaper than deuterium depleted hydrogen water, which is a lot cheaper than deuterium depleted water, may be a good way to um, improve your deuterium situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've been wondering that I've been, um, you know, asking Petra and Laszlo the same thing. And I think we're all just putting the pieces together. But, you know, the cool thing is more, um, more people who are aware um, can share their deuterium levels in the water, you can also get that tested. So if you have a great water source, or you're curious, um, and want to know, you can get the deuterium mm -hmm. levels, you know, tested, and then glyphosate, of course, tested in the water, there's more tests coming out where you can not only test your body, but also your food and your water and glyphosate. So I think, you know, those things are, you know, really important to know. And, and then the other the comment I just wanted to mention it, as we already said, is that, you know, these high fat diets or the ketogenic diet, the probably the one of the most valuable mechanisms may be the, 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 yeah. the deuterium diet. So I think that's a lot cheaper than deuterium water. I know, I know. <laughs> you know? Deuterium water. I mean, if someone has you no know, cancer or something, obviously I understand that level of therapeutic intervention, but it's a lot, you know, especially when everybody is doing all these other things for their health, it's, it's, it's a lot. Right. And as you mentioned, there's probably a place where, you know, that becomes a diminishing return, right. And when, Right. You don't want to just deplete deuterium. You want to fix the whole deuterium movement problem that's messed up by glyphosate. So you really mm -hmm. need to try to get rid of glyphosate. And one thing I will say is in driving, you should avoid the highway. And I already did kind of go the back mm -hmm. roads, but now I do so more religiously because uh, the highway is dangerous if there's, if there's glyphosate being released by all those vehicles on the highway. Wow. Yeah. That, that I'm, you know, we put some of those already correlations with air pollution. And if you look at yeah. the highway, there's more incidences of asthma and other health conditions, but yeah, no, looking at it from this angle is yeah. A whole other, the whole other thing. Yeah. And know. it's, it has been shown that the biodiesel fuel is more inflammatory than normal diesel fuel. It, it studies have shown repeat, repeatedly that have shown that it's, it's inflammatory. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. had hoped that it would be actually better. And I think they were somewhat surprised to find that it was worse. But when they mm -hmm. did the studies, they found out that it was not, uh, biodiesel fuel is, is not good. It releases nitrogen oxides, which are also really bad for climate change. So it's not clear that it's helping climate change, you know, <laughs> releases yeah. a lot more nitrogen oxides than, uh, than diesel fuel does. We have to keep coming back to the drawing board of what are going to be the alternative fuel sources. You know, maybe this was well intended, but obviously had this whole other you know, we have to, we have to think. Yeah. And sure. it could be that it's, it's fine as long as there isn't glyphosate in it. It could yeah. be if we were using organic <laughs> agriculture to harvest, you know. <laughs> I can imagine that, right? Yeah. I guess lots of questions about chlorine dioxide, you know, protocols for glyphosate and so forth. But I think just to maybe give people some other tangible tools. Do you have a favorite glyphosate test? I mean, we've been using Great Plains. Yeah. Great Plains like, is good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you feel like, you know, with, um, I kind of, you know, we test a lot of different environmental toxicants in the body, especially heavy metals, and we have to do these provocation tests and they're, you know, we're really, you know, always saying this is just a snapshot of the body. It's not always indicative of, you know, where we have. Right. Things That's stored certainly and, true for know. glyphosate. Yeah. And, and also the test can be flawed because mm -hmm. the, if glyphosate's in the proteins, if it doesn't get released from the proteins, it'll be missed. And I think that's one big problem with testing glyphosate in proteins. Um, and in fact, Monsanto's own researchers found that out. They, they did a radio labeled glyphosate experiment and they found glyphosate in the tissue. They found the radio label in the tissues and they mm -hmm. could only account for like 20% of the radio label as glyphosate. Once they added these enzymes that break down the proteins into individual amino acids, the yield got much higher. They got like 70% of the radio label was recovered as glyphosate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a huge problem with glyphosate levels in proteins mm -hmm. that we're missing a lot of the glyphosate because it's embedded in the protein yeah. because it's getting substituted in for glycine almost see this visualization that we all might not want to see of, you know, how, how much glyphosate, you know, lights up in our body, right? If we were, oh, I know if we could just uh, see it, if we had some way to actually see it, yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> and that they are working on some in the exotic ways to test for glyphosate in foods. And I'm hoping there will come up some, with some device that you could buy that wouldn't be too expensive that you could actually be wonderful. You could kind of go shine some light on the Cheerios to see if they have glyphosate yeah, right, in them and then right. not buy them because they do. I mean, that would be so amazing if we could yeah. come up with some something like that. 
you know, innovation, I, that, oh, that's what always gives me hope whenever there's a problem like this and bright minds and people continuing to, you know, collaborate, you know, that might be in our future, Stephanie. I'm, I'm all for that. So yeah, that would be great. Oh, well, I want to be respectful of your time. It's already noon. And I know that you just gave us so much information that I'm sure people are going to, you know, have to listen to the recording, which we will send out and digest. And I am just, I can't say enough how grateful we are to you and your work. And you've helped us really just um, have this whole other clinical insight for our patients that we wouldn't have had if um, you hadn't been so um, influential. So I I just want to thank you for everything. you And I want to thank you as well for the work you're doing. It's so important clinicians like you, boots on the ground, who are trying to figure out how to heal people. It's just wonderful what your work you're doing. It's very Mm -hmm. heroic. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. Well, team effort. And again, we're so grateful for your time and please go enjoy the sunshine and the beautiful day ahead. And um, we'll be in touch and everybody who's listening, we'll send out the recording and, um, you know, please just um, feel free to email me if you guys have any other questions. We have people answering emails all day. So we're happy to share insights if if your question did not get answered. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Bye -bye. everyone. (laughs) Bye. Bye.